Let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles, if you have yours, to um, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. And our passage this morning is verses 14 through 20. And they read like this. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Jesus said to them, follow me and I'll make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. So this morning we'll see how Jesus begins his ministry. Last time uh, we saw that Mark began his gospel uh, in the wilderness with Old Testament promises about a deliverer to come. And then Jesus coming to John to be baptized first with water and then by the Holy Spirit descending from his father, anointing him. And we saw how that same spirit drove him further into the wilderness to begin his confrontation with Satan in the temptations there. And the next event in the story is that John himself is silenced, cast into prison, of which Mark will have more to say in chapter 6. But it's interesting that it's not until that moment that Jesus begins his ministry. Verse 14, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee in the northern part of Israel and uh, proclaiming the gospel of God. So timing, timing was a big thing with Jesus. I remember he spent 30 years just uh, working in the carpenter shop. Uh, um, uh, and then even after his baptism and temptation, it, it, the implication is he doesn't really start uh, his uh, public ministry until John is cast into prison, until the time was right. It's interesting what that time is. I mean, the, the authorities, uh, the powers of this world had shut up one preacher and, uh, and then a better takes his place. And really from that day until this, the gospel has proven very hard to kill just when you think you've snuffed it out in one place, it, it pops up somewhere else. Uh, and the blood of the martyrs has indeed proven to be the seed of the church. So John's voice is silenced. And now Jesus, for the first time in Mark's account, begins to speak. And what we're told he does is proclaim the gospel of God. Remember, gospel is good news. Uh, Jesus came declaring good news, good news from God, and particularly good news about God. That, that's what you could say, that's one way to say what the gospel was. It was good news about God. We saw that throughout his Sermon on the Mount as we studied it. Jesus told us, he taught us, that God was our Father and would give good things to those who ask him and would care for all our needs. Uh, 
So we should stop worrying and bring everything to him. And it's interesting that years later when the Apostle John, the last living apostle, uh, and one of the later books in the New Testament, when he summarized what he had learned from Jesus and the message he was giving out, he put it like this in, in his first epistle. This is the message. This is the news which we heard from him. This is what I learned from Jesus and that I want to tell you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. That is, uh, well, that's the good news. God is perfectly, entirely good. All your misgivings, all your doubts are unnecessary. He's untainted by anything wrong or bad at all, despite appearances sometimes, so that he can be utterly and completely trusted in every circumstance of life and even in death. Jesus began to proclaim good news about God. And then he fleshes that out some in verse 15. Because what he was saying was this, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So, so the first half of that is the good news. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. And the second is his call, his invitation. Repent and believe in the good news. So let's, let's look first at what the news is. It's like the answer to the question, you know, what's new, Jesus? Or uh, what, what's the news? And uh, the answer is, first of all, the time is fulfilled. The time's arrived. What time is that? The time that all the prophets and all the angels of heaven had been longing and waiting and hoping for. It's the time Paul talked about in Galatians 4.4 4, when he said, When the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. The time had finally arrived. The watershed moment in history, okay, the moment the prophets had written about centuries before, the time first hinted at to Adam and Eve, when on the very day they fell, God promised that he'd bring a deliverer, that one day a seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. The time that the Old Testament saints longed for and that they waited for all their lives, though they never saw it, we read in Hebrews 11, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, embraced them. These were the Old Testament heroes of faith. They didn't see it. I mean, they saw it afar off with the eyes of faith and they embraced it. And Jesus would say, that's what's happening now. In Matthew 13, he'll put it like this. Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, and they didn't see it, and long to hear what you hear, but they didn't hear it. But now it's time. 
The time is fulfilled. The future is now. It's happening before your eyes. And what's happening? The kingdom of God is at hand. Or it's near. Or it's come to you now. It's, it's available to you now. So what did he mean by that? That's a, that the kingdom of God is mentioned some seven times in the New Testament. There's some controversy about, about it, I guess. But, I mean, what's a kingdom? A kingdom is basically a place uh, ruled by a king. A kingdom. A place where he holds dominion. Where the people accept his rule. So the kingdom of God is where God rules, where his authority is embraced, where men and women bow their knees to him and call him Lord. Right. It's the worshiping community. Uh, So where is God's kingdom? Let me say it's it depends on what time you're talking about. At one time it was everywhere. It was just everywhere. And and someday It'll be everywhere again. Um, But something went wrong here where we live, uh, as we'll see in a little bit. A different ruler held sway here on planet Earth. And Jesus is announcing that now the situation has changed because he's here, because he's arrived. The kingdom of God has become available to us. Okay, but but what did the arrival of the kingdom of God mean on the ground? I mean, how does it change our situation? What does it really mean in practical terms? Okay, what did Jesus mean by the kingdom of God? Now, the scholars will tell us that the first thing we ought to do is to determine how um, the the first hearers would have understood what Jesus said, right? How, how those first people would have understood it. And there's no question how they understood it. It seems plain enough to the people who first heard him say these words. Uh, I mean, they were quite sure he was talking about a political kingdom, about restoring the kingdom to Israel, getting the power back from the Romans, getting rid of the Romans. This is what even John the Baptist seemed to think at times. Remember when he sent a message to Jesus from prison? John's in prison. Jesus is going around preaching. He's having great ministry. John's still in prison. Finally, he sends some disciples. He says, hey, Jesus, are you the one? Or should we look for somebody else? I mean, come on, get on with the program. Seems like Herod's still on the throne. The Romans are still running roughshod over us. What's the problem? So... You know, it's like he didn't quite get what Jesus was after. And even even his own disciples, I mean, even after spending three years with Jesus, even after the resurrection, 40 days later, Jesus is about to ascend to his father again. And we read in Acts 1.6, Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? It's like... Uh, I mean, all this stuff you've been doing is is really great, but okay, now are we going to get on top again and kick the Romans out? I don't know. Sometimes I think poor Jesus must have been, Lord, come on. But um, 
I mean, you have to remember, Jesus was bringing his news about a kingdom to a conquered people, a fiercely proud people who were under the thumb of a foreign power, under the dominion of a foreign power that they hated. He was coming to a place ready to explode. One commentator uh, says it's a simple historical fact that in the 30 years from 67 to 37 B.C., um, before the emergence of Herod the Great. Now, Herod the Great was appointed a king by the Roman Senate. He was a vassal of Rome, and he kind of squashed things down with a heavy hand. But it says no fewer than 150,000 men perished in Palestine in revolutionary uprisings. There was no more explosive or inflammable country in the world than Palestine. And Galilee was uh, one of the worst places for that. Um, Revolution was in the air. And Jesus comes saying that he's bringing a kingdom. So do the math. The people thought Jesus was talking about a revolt against Rome, about a political kingdom. Um, And actually, his followers have sometimes made that mistake ever since. It's it's usually not been a good thing when when uh, uh, we've confused the kingdom of God with some political agenda or something. At worst, it's a distraction. And and at best, well, at best, it's a distraction. It can even become a source of division uh, within the body of Christ. But the fact is, Jesus had something far more radical than they could imagine. They were thinking about Israel in bondage to Rome. Jesus was thinking about a world in bondage to sin. They wanted political freedom. Jesus wanted to free their minds, right? It was, it was as radical, for those of you who are familiar with that, that movie, The Matrix, that I quote now and then, you know, it was like that. They thought they were free, and all the time, you know, they were completely enthralled. And Jesus had come to set their minds free. All right, so what did the arrival of the kingdom of God in the person of Jesus mean? I think if you want to understand it, one of the best places to look is in the Gospel of Luke. This is amazing, I think. And forgive me if I'm talking about the devil again this morning. I know that's not real fashionable, uh, but here it is. Um, You remember in Luke chapter 11, now Jesus has just cast out a demon. That is one of the minions of Satan. And the Pharisees and stuff were saying, well... This guy's casting out demons by the prince of demons. Remember that? That he's in league with Satan. So we read, beginning in verse 17, that he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and a house divided against a house falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? That's interesting talk. I mean, he's saying that Satan has a kingdom, right? Well, listen to this. If I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. That's what's happened 
when Jesus arrived in Galilee, he says, the kingdom of God has come upon you. That is a new center of force, a power, of authority, a a new dominion is here in the midst. And then he tells this story. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are at peace. Everything's peaceful. Everything's locked down. But when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from him all his armor in which he trusts and divides his spoil. Sheesh. So, Satan has a kingdom. Satan is the strong man who guards his palace. So where is his kingdom? And what is his palace? Now, Jesus himself calls Satan the ruler of this world. Paul calls him the god of this age. And John the Apostle in his epistle says, We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. That is, his kingdom is this present age, this world system. Now, how did that happen? How did he get this dominion? Well, you know, in Genesis chapter 1, God had given us dominion uh, over his world, over everything that he had made on the earth. And in Genesis chapter 3, we handed it over to Satan, if I may put it in those terms. Well, Satan puts it in those terms. In Luke's account of the temptations of Christ, that second temptation, we read that, that the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the earth in a moment of time. And you know what he says after that? He said to Jesus, All this authority, that is dominion, and all their glory, uh, I'll give to you. For this has been delivered to me. This has been handed over to me, and I give it to whoever I will. And Jesus didn't argue with him. Jesus didn't come to uh, deny that assertion He came to destroy that dominion. Um, And what are his goods? Our time is brief, let me just tell you. The souls of men and women. He has humanity in bondage, in chains, bound by sin and fear. And he has them securely guarded. Satan is the strong man, he guards his own palace. His goods are in peace. His rule is secure. All's quiet. Until now. Until now. Because now a stronger man has come. A stronger man breaks into his house and overcomes him. He opens the prison doors. He sets the captives free. That is what Jesus said the coming of the kingdom of God is about. It's about taking back the world for God. The kingdom of God had come because the rightful king had arrived in rebel-held earth. He'd come to set things right. He'd come to destroy the works of the devil. And his kingdom is still present. It's here, hopefully, I think it's here this morning, among those Uh, who are subjects of the true king, those who bow their knees to him. That is his church. 
So we're like a little outpost of the kingdom of God in the midst of someone else's kingdom. C.S. Lewis rather famously puts it like this. And remember, he was, this is from his broadcast talks during World War II. So there's a lot of military imagery. But he writes, enemy-occupied territory. That's what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. You might say landed in disguise and is calling us all to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. When you go to church, you're really listening into the secret wireless from our friends. That's why the enemy is so anxious to prevent us from going. And one day, the final trumpet will sound and the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. And the, and the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And Satan's reign will be finally and forever completely done. But not yet. See, not yet. And the waiting can be hard on us. So we live in this funny, frustrating in-between time. Right? The kingdom has come. And yet we pray, Lord, thy kingdom come. Jesus is present in the midst of his church. And we pray, oh, Lord, come. Maranatha, even so, come, Lord Jesus. We live in this in-between time, what the Bible calls the last days, which means the last days of this present darkness. The last days began when Jesus arrived, and when he died on the cross, Satan's kingdom was cracked at the foundations. His night is far spent. He can't maintain his darkness much longer. And we're called to be children of the day while it's yet night. Because the situation's changed. A stronger than he has entered his house. So that's the, that's the message. That's the news. It's big news. And therefore, the call, the invitation. Again, verse 15, the time is fulfilled. The time that all the ages had been pointing toward. And the kingdom of God is now at hand. So, therefore, repent. And believe in the gospel. Uh, Okay, so we have the news. And in the light of that, Jesus calls us to repent. We ought to think about that word a little bit. It's the word metanoeo or repentance is metanoia. So when we think of repent, we think of maybe just feeling bad about our sins. I repent of doing that. I feel bad about that. Well, it includes that, right? And it includes turning from our sins. But it's a bigger thing than that. Metanoia means a change your mind. Change your mind. It means change how you see things. He's calling us to a radical change in our thinking and in our lives. He asks us to see the world entirely differently because we've had it all wrong. We've had the wool pulled over our eyes. And Jesus is calling us to a whole new way of seeing life. He wants to set us free. 
that Jesus died, uh, it says in Hebrews chapter 2, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, there's that guy again, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Jesus says that we're all our lifetime subject to bondage. Again, I think, I don't get that. We're Americans, you know, we're free, land of the free, home of the brave. You know, when Jesus was telling some of uh, the Jews that had believed in him, uh, you know, if you can abide in my word, you'll be my disciples indeed, and you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they said, what are you talking about? We're children of Abraham. We're not in bondage to anyone. Remember what Jesus said. Whoever sins is a slave of sin. See? But if the Son sets you free, then you'll be free indeed. You'll be really free. Those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. See, living in fear is what we know. Isn't that the dominant motivation of our lives? I mean, how much of what we do is because we're afraid of this or that and ultimately of death? See, we've been trained to think like slaves, even though we've been freed, but we need our minds free. It's like the children of Israel. It was pretty hard to to lead the children of Israel out of bondage in Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt. It was hard to get them out of there, right? It took took 10 miracles and then... God had to part the very sea to get them out of Egypt. But that was easier than getting the slavery out of the children of Israel. It was harder to teach them um, not to think like slaves. I mean, that took a 40-year education in the wilderness. And and, and for really, it was their children that finally... uh, we're able to go in and take the promise. We're naturally fearful, pessimistic, always on the verge of despair, always expecting something bad to happen, and so always on our guard, trying to protect ourselves, trying to pretend we can control events. But Jesus challenges our deeply held assumption. You see, we've had it all wrong. We actually have a Father in heaven. He has good plans for us. Um, Death is defeated. It only means more life. We need to change our whole outlook. Metanoia, right? Repent and believe the good news. Forget everything you thought you knew, right? And, And believe in good. Trust me. Believe what I'm telling you. All right. So then Jesus calls his first disciple. He offers his first practical invitations into this new life. And that's in the last part of our passage. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Jesus said to them, follow me, and I'll make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the sons of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boats mending their nets. 
And immediately he called them. They left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. So in the few minutes remaining, let's note the invited. Who is he inviting here? Now, I think I've made it plain. Jesus has a very big project in mind. He's the rightful king and his mission is to reclaim the whole world and to set right all that's wrong. So where does he go, first of all? Does he go to Rome, the capital? Does he, or maybe Athens, the intellectual center of the world? No, he walks along the beach of the Sea of Galilee. I mean, first of all, he's in Galilee, and you may know that, you know, even in Israel, Galilee was like the outback. Galilee, Galilee was like the nothing place there. But he's on the outskirts of an obscure province at the far end of the empire, a nothing place, just a nothing place. It's, you know, Bakersfield. I'm sorry. I, I, I <laughs> <laughs> sorry for all you Bakersfieldites. Uh, okay, and who does he enlist in the great campaign? Politicians, philosophers, soldiers? No, poor, uneducated fishermen, nobodies, non-entities, right? But, you know, if you read the Bible, you know, that's kind of God's style. He's always... Uh, Picking the younger sons or the, the weak, the poor, raising people up that were pushed down. The Old Testament is full of stories of God using the small, the weak, the nobodies to conquer the strong. Todd's been telling us one of those stories, right? When he chooses a young kid who's following after sheep and makes him uh, into a king. And in the New Testament, Paul you know, and not the most flattering passage of Scripture in the Bible, tells us in 1 Corinthians, Consider your own calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. You know, you're not that smart. There's not a lot of rich and famous people out there. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. Um, okay, the invitees. And then the invitation. Follow me. Uh, that's great, isn't it? Uh, it's not simply believe my words or obey my rules uh, or even imitate my life. He, you know, you won't learn what you need to that way, he says. Come with me. Come with me, walk with me, spend time with me. Let's go on a journey together. Let's, 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 let's go someplace together. Get in the yoke with me and let's walk together. And the promise, I'll make you become fishers of men. Your own ideas for your life are too small. I have much bigger plans for you. You've been catching fish. I'll teach you to catch men. Now, for a fish to get caught isn't maybe so good for the fish, but it's the only hope for a human being. Jesus came to catch people, 
to pluck them out of the fire, to call them out of darkness into his marvelous light. Notice how Paul puts it in Colossians 1.13. Jesus has delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of the son of his love. That is, he's moved us from one kingdom to another. He's moved us from being under the dominion of the rulers of the darkness of this age, and he's transferred us into the kingdom of God's beloved son. And so, at the beginning of his campaign to change the world, here is Jesus standing on the beach, walking along, inviting some fishermen who were busy at their work, two casting nets into the water, two mending nets in a boat. He tells them to come walk with him and learn how to change the world, how to catch human beings, how to free captives, how to turn their world upside down. And you could hardly imagine a less promising group to wage war with. You could hardly imagine a less auspicious start to this grand campaign, right? These young peasants had nothing much to offer, nothing to bring with them. They just had this one thing. They accepted Jesus' offer. They did one big thing. They got out of their boats. They went with Jesus. They followed him. And Jesus kept his promise. They did become fishers of men. At Peter's first sermon a few years later on the day of Pentecost, we're told in Acts 2 that those who gladly received his words were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Not a bad catch. And a few years later, they were causing such a stir that when the uh, disciples came to Thessalonica, the people were in an uproar. They said, those who have turned the worlds upside down have come here too. They left their boats. They walked with Jesus and became something remarkable. They confounded the wisdom of the wise. They overcame the might of the empire. They changed their world forever. Well, we're going to sing one more song to the Lord, and we're going to ask the prayer team to come up to pray with folks after the service. Let me say a little prayer now. Father, I thank you for your word. Father, thank you for bringing good news to us. We sorely need it, Lord. Uh, help us to uh, change our minds and believe in your good news, Father. I thank you for those who have sat through a long sermon. Pray that your good hand of blessing would rest on them, that you would strengthen and bless them and encourage their hearts. Go with them as they leave this place today. And now, Father, uh, again, uh, uh, accept our words of praise as we magnify uh, the precious name of your Son, our Lord, our Savior, our King, uh, Jesus Christ. Amen.